you know, cognitive dissonance and bias are so strong. And once we lock in on an idea, it becomes very difficult to see evidence that contradicts that. And it also becomes very difficult to scrutinize evidence that supports it. Welcome, Inform Nation, to episode 47 of the Inform Fitness Podcast. I'm Tim Edwards with the Inbound Podcasting Network, and in a minute, Adam Zickerman, the founder of Inform Fitness and general manager slash trainer at Inform Fitness New York City, will be joined by the gentleman whose voice opened the show, Dr. Peter Atia, who is the founder of Atia Medical PC, medical practice with offices in San Diego and in New York City, focusing on the applied science of longevity. He also happens to be a client of Inform Fitness like myself. Dr. Atia joins us today to discuss the studying of studies regarding the mechanics of scientific research and how to distinguish the relationship between showing cause and effect. Now, you might be asking, what does any of this have to do with slow motion, high intensity strength training? Well, plenty. How many times in this podcast have we referenced a study based upon exercise and nutrition alone? You see it every day in your social media feeds and on the news. But how many of these studies are actually true or even accurate? How are these studies administered, and can you trust the results? Well, to quote Adam Zickerman, hopefully after listening to this episode, you'll be a bit more equipped to understand the barrage of information you read and hear about, and not to fall hook, line, and sinker for every claim that is reported as a study. Hello, everybody. This is Adam. Uh, very excited about this podcast. It's, it's kind of a little heady. Uh, gets into statistics, but hopefully we're going to break it down for the layperson. So you, when you read headlines that make such crazy claims that you can kind of, you're, 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 well, basically a bullshit detector goes off and you can kind of <laughs> figure out how to navigate that. So we have with us uh, to talk about this, Dr. Peter Atia. He's a physician practicing in New York City and California. And uh, his practice basically focuses on longevity, which he calls the overlap of lifespan and health span, which is kind of cool. His clinical interests are in nutritional biochemistry, exercise physiology, lipidology, endocrinology, and a few other cool things. He's also uh, somebody who uh, works out uh, very, uh, he's, you just worked out here just now, didn't you? I sure did. <laughs> How you feeling? That hurt. That was, that was. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Peter. Mike trained him. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, so, not so, sorry. Yes, Peter also is, a, is an incredible athlete endurance athlete, and uh, he understands the efficacy of, of these types of high-intensity workouts that we talk about. So, doctor, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, but I will add one correction. I, I don't think I can use the word athlete to describe anything I do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, long gone. Former athlete. He looks I like stand. an athlete. Yeah, he looks like an athlete. If you haven't athlete. seen him, he looks pretty good. He's a good-looking guy. <laughs> so, Peter, I wanted to do this podcast because I read your series. You, read, you wrote a five-piece series called Studying Studies, uh, and you venture into much detail about the mechanics, if you will, of scientific research and how difficult it is to distinguish, without a shadow of a doubt, the relationship between, of course, what all research tries to do, show cause and effect. Uh, so, Dr. Tia, uh, you start off your series uh, quoting two iconic individuals. First, uh, from Mark Twain, who I guess you mentioned is quoting uh, Disraeli, uh, Benjamin yeah, Disraeli, yeah. who uh, says, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. <laughs> uh, and you also quote uh, 
Nobel Prize winning physicist, Richard Feynman, one of my favorites, actually. Uh, I read his uh, posthumously published Caltech lecture called The Meaning of It All. Is that where you got this quote from, by the way? I actually, to be honest with you, I don't remember in which, I mean, he said it so famously so many times. Yeah. My favorite book, of course, is is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. Yes. Which is uh, sort of the, the... the sort of entertainment value of Feynman. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Feynman says, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. So you have to be very careful about that. And this is our responsibility as scientists, certainly to other scientists, and I think also to laymen. So doctor, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but your main point of this whole series of essays is something that you actually say in your first essay, which is, and I'm quoting you, statistics can be both persuasive and misleading if we're not careful. And it's self-persuasion that we must vigilantly guard against if we really want reliable knowledge about the world we live in. So can you tell us why this is so important to understand? Sure. But before I do, I also want to acknowledge um, you know, the work that goes into um, the stuff that I write. Um, it couldn't really be done without kind of a team of analysts I have. So um, inside my medical practice, I have a team of four analysts whose full-time job it is is to help me read, assimilate, digest, uh, and understand the absolute barrage of data that's out there. I think in one of our posts, we even mentioned that um, at last check, there are just under 100,000 um, pieces of literature produced monthly on PubMed in the English language. And I think our estimation is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred of them hmm. would be relevant to what we do, meaning they overlap with our field of interest, but also would rise to the standard of being relevant of our attention. And hmm. to funnel that down from a hundred thousand to a hundred is something that I could use a team of 400 analysts to do. But the four guys I have are amazing. And in particular, Bob Kaplan, who's the, who's, sort of in charge of the whole operation and my right hand, um, without him, this whole thing that we do wouldn't, wouldn't exist. So with that said, um, shout out to Bob, shout out to Bob. (laughs) And, um, and also I think I would say, um, we wrote this series knowing it was not going to be that quote unquote interesting. Mm -hmm. This was not something we wrote to, you know, there's no clickbait involved here. (laughs) This is kind of something that we hope will over time become the sort of thing that people go back to. Um, I forget who said it, but there's an interesting quote that, that said some, something to the effect of like, you're, you only learn something when you're actually ready to learn it. And, and of course, it was stated much more eloquently. But the <laughs> point is like, a lot of times these things fall on deaf ears. And, and so anyway, with that said, what we've created is a bit of a repository called Studying Studies. And it begins with, I think our first one is on relative versus absolute risk, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yep. But to your point, which is the important one, we are all, myself included, so guilty of this. It mm-hmm. is just, you know, cognitive dissonance and bias are so strong. And once we lock in on an idea, it becomes very difficult to see evidence that contradicts that. And it also becomes very difficult to scrutinize evidence that supports it. And so I think what Feynman says quite eloquently could be also stated by, you know, one of the guys when I was doing my postdoc, who I remember very well. He said to me, you know, you have to learn to kill your babies. So you're going to do, you're going to have a hypothesis. You're going to do a whole bunch of experiments. You're going to think you're getting an answer and, 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 and you're going to start to, you know, drive that answer. You're going to, you're going to look at ways to see your data in a, in a, in a manner that makes your, your answer seem more believable, but you have to be able to scrutinize that to the point where you ultimately end up killing most of your babies. So 
I, I don't pretend to say that this is easy. I think this is actually very difficult. And in many ways, the easiest way to do it is, you know, doing it the way we try to do it, which is have more than one person involved and have opposing sets of eyes. Um, I've spoken about this certainly in, in, in sort of other discussions around the notion of creating a blue team, red team. So this is something that's not uncommon in, in sort of experimental disciplines of science like physics. Um, but I think it's frankly even valuable in things like, you know, a hedge fund. Uh, you know, so for example, if you're trying to decide if, you know, this stock is worth the price that it's being asked right now, you s typically will send off a team of analysts to do a bunch of research on that. But that exercise can be much more powerful if you send off a blue team and a red team that don't necessarily communicate with each other in any way, shape, or form, but go and look at data and force themselves to make the for and against case, and then you compare it. So to create a debate, like hoping that there will be a debate. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so the, we internally kind of talk about this idea of blue team, red team as a way to keep ourselves honest because I don't really trust myself that much. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that any individual should be able to trust themselves. No, I know I'm biased. I mean, <laughs> yeah. totally. When it comes to just the way we train people and how we view exercise, it's, and that's why I, like you said, you know, you don't learn something until you're ready for it. And that that's where I am in my career, you know, trying to push the envelope with exercise science and knowledge and, you know, this can't be it, right? So there got to be more to all this. I think it was Carl Sagan that said, uh, if there's an exception to the rule in science, the rule is wrong. Yeah. You know, and I'm finding exceptions in exercise all the time. So, you know, even I need to wake myself up and, and push the envelope and question everything that I do. And this is why I have you on the show today. Well, I think that that speaks to something that makes biology much more difficult than mm -hmm. physics or mathematics. So yeah. the first thing is, um, I think there are very few rules in biology in the way that we think of rules in you know these other disciplines. So to your yeah. point, I don't think I could with a straight face make the case that there is one exercise regimen, one nutritional regimen, one, you know, endocrinologic regimen, et cetera, that is optimal for every person. I mean, I simply know that's not the case. <laughs> I could argue it on first principles. I could argue it empirically. Mm -hmm. So, so, so what's a corollary of that? A corollary of that is that there are no proofs in biology. And we have to be very careful with the use of that word. So right. if I had a dollar for every time I saw a study that said such and such proves X or this study proves Y, uh, it's incredible sloppiness, either on the part of the journalist or the scientist, because unlike mathematics, where there are proofs, there are no proofs in biology. Everything is stochastic. Everything is about probability. Everything is about confidence. But uh, there is no proof, and therefore, as an extension, there are likely very few rules, you know, outside of things like central dogma. Exactly. So let's get to this idea of self-persuasion and use some examples. All right. An example you used was a headline. And the title of this journal article said, Cholesterol-Fighting Drugs, Lower Risk of Alzheimer's Disease. And you use that as an example of the self-persuasion. Well, you know, I was thinking about that um, after we wrote it, and I was like, that wasn't even a great example. Because, <laughs> I mean, it was a good example, but yeah, I think a, a better far, one if you want. there's a far more egregious example, actually, Go which is it. the use of hormone replacement therapy okay. in postmenopausal women and the risk of breast cancer associated with it. And there I think go. I remember Bob and I talking about this before we put that piece out and deciding we weren't going to use that example since that warrants an entire post on its own, which mm -hmm. we'll get to. The gist of that is the following. I think many people, if they're up in the peanut gallery and not like digging down into the data will still have some sort of vague 
uh, notion that hormone replacement therapy increases the risk of breast cancer in women. So the question is, where does that inclination come from? And that inclination comes from something called the Women's Health Initiative, which was a study that was done um, in response to, interestingly, an epidemiologic series of studies that suggested that women who went on hormone replacement therapy actually saw improvements in many aspects of morbidity. Obviously, not, not, not easy to look at mortality, but for example, you know, greater cognition, uh, improved bone density, improved heart health, less breast cancer, et cetera. But as was a reasonable thing to do, the question was, well, let's put this to the test with a prospective randomized double-blinded control trial, and that was done. Um, I won't get into the complete shortcomings of the actual study because the study itself had at least four enormous structural shortcomings that are not a fault of the people who studied it. In other words, at the time the study was done, I think it had to be done incorrectly, which is as ridiculous as that sounds. But when we look back today, it's very clear that you would do at least four things orthogonally differently, not just slightly differently. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, when the study came out, the headline, the only thing that most people remember is, quote, breast cancer risk went up 25% in the women getting HRT. And so to this day, if I ever want to have a discussion about HRT with a patient, <laughs> it, it begins with about a 30-minute lecture on the Women's Health Initiative, which is one of the papers I actually have sitting in my office on my desk so I can just very easily refer to it. It's kind of reminding me of the autism and, and uh, vaccination type of... Uh, well, that's even a worse example because that was actually perpetuated by fraud. Uh, yeah. What effectively turned out to be to be to be fraud and 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 you know sort of or at least scientific misconduct. Yeah. Let's go. This, Let's this go. was this was an example where yes, it is true that when you compared the use of estrogen and progestin to a placebo, the hazard ratio for breast cancer was one point two four. So what does that mean? So a hazard ratio of 1.24 means a 24% increase in the relative risk of breast cancer. I'll resist all urges to explain why I don't even believe that that is correct, (laughs) but let's assume it is correct. Let's assume that there was a 24% increase in response to the use of estrogen um, and or progestin. the, the important question that should be asked, but was often overlooked, was what was the absolute increase in risk? The relative increase in risk doesn't tell you anything by itself. And when you look back at the data, which is very easy to do, you don't actually have to be a statistician or a mathematician to do this. It's actually only basic arithmetic that I think we'll walk readers through in that series. Um, the absolute increase in risk was approximately going from four cases per thousand to five cases per thousand. <laughs> Now, going from four cases per thousand to five cases per thousand is indeed a 25 or, you know, it was actually 24% increase in relative risk, but it's only a one in a thousand or 0.1% absolute increase in risk. So the way I try to help women understand HRT is let's assume that that's correct. And I'll give you seven reasons why I don't believe it is. (laughs) But if that is correct, if that becomes our ceiling of risk, and let's assume it is, you then have to ask the question, is a 0.1% increase in your risk of breast cancer worth the alleviation of some of the symptoms you might actually have during menopause? And of course, I think the answer would be, it depends on how bad those symptoms are. If a woman is sailing through menopause and she has no symptoms, then one could maybe convincingly say, look, it's not worth the hassle slash the risk. Mm -hmm. But when a woman is debilitated Mm -hmm. by a number of symptoms, including all the vasomotor symptoms, which are usually the first ones, 
you have to ask the question, how bad is a 0.1% absolute increase in a disease that has a 1 in 12 chance of killing you? Especially now, since you can probably figure out their family history of breast cancer. Absolutely. And, and we have much better you know, ways yeah, to, to exactly. further refine risk for an individual. Exactly. So this is, to me, one of the most important things that the, that the lay person wants to have in their toolkit, which is if, if ever I read something, you know, whether it be in the actual paper itself or more typically in the way it's reported, I want to make sure I understand the difference between absolute and relative risk. So, so Peter, is it, is it too wieldy a, a question to ask you to help us figure out the difference between, rel, you know, our, our listeners figure out what relative risk is versus absolute risk? It might be, but I can give it a try. So <laughs> uh, the example I just gave is probably as good a one as you can use, although I think we talk about Alzheimer's disease elsewhere. The relative risk at the risk of not using the word relative to define it, says from wherever you start, and I don't know where you're starting, or I'm going to ignore where you're starting, how much does the probability of this event go up? And that relative risk in this example is 25%. So you went from something that has a 0.4% chance of happening to something that has a 0.5% chance of happening. And going from 0.4 to 0.5 is mathematically an increase of 25%. Mm-hmm. So the relative risk is 25%. But of course, if you went from 40% likelihood of happening to 50% likelihood of happening, that would also be a 25% relative risk. The difference is in the latter example, your absolute increase in risk is 10%. Right. Whereas in the former, your absolute level of increase in risk is 0.1%. Gotcha. And that's why it's very difficult to make decisions clinically without knowing both. But because we are, I think, inherently a bunch of lazy people, and I would include myself in that just as anybody, we want headlines. We want what, what's going to sound more exciting. There was a 0.1% increase in the risk of something, or there was a 25% increase. Both are correct, but both are incomplete in isolation. Yeah, you gave another example about uh, the relative risk for this new drug reduced cancer incidence by 50%. That was the relative risk. Right. And then, but the absolute risk is really goes from two and two in 1,000 going to, to one in 1,000. Correct. So is that really a, everyone thinks, wow, I have a 50% chance of reducing my risk of cancer when really it's, that's actually not true. Well, it's you, true. It's true in a relative on a sense, relative basis, but then you now have to evaluate it's really the wonderful. risk. It is, is, is dropping my absolute risk by 0.1% worth the trade-off of taking whatever this, this drug, drug might is, be. is, exactly. All right. And you say we're messy creatures, and there are so many moving parts and pieces uh, to, to what, what will influence the results of a study. For example, the exercise habits of individuals that make up a sample or their access to health care, their smoking history can confound uh, the results of, of, of the study you're trying to prove an association of. So like one confounder I'd love you to talk about is this healthy user bias, all right, because that, that, that's a common one and it's kind of easy to understand and, and how that plays into uh, studies and how quickly and how just a, what I'm trying to do is trying to find show, show how easy it is to have things screw up a study and the results really, really might not be what we think they are. Yeah. So, I mean, Richard Feynman does a great job and there's a, there's a great clip on YouTube and I'm sure it's, I know we've linked to it somewhere in the blog about he's giving a lecture at, I think it's either, it's either at Caltech or Cornell 
Um, but maybe you can find it in the show notes and link to it. But it's a beautiful, beautiful exercise of him on a blackboard walking through the scientific method. And he explains it in a way that I won't even try to reproduce because it's just so priceless and, and, and Feynman-esque. But it's effectively you make an observation, you make a guess, you design an experiment and compute the consequences of what your guess would be if the, in other words, what would be the experimental outcome if your guess or hypothesis is correct? You design the experiment and then you measure the outcome versus the outcome you predicted or that would be true if the thing is correct. Now, he explains it much more eloquently. The gist of it is outside of doing experiments, we actually cannot establish cause and effect outside of the most extreme circumstances that tend to be by far the exceptions and, and rarely the rules. So what you're talking about, a healthy user bias, becomes an issue when we rely on things outside of experiments, which we unfortunately have to do very often, or at least choose to do very often in human biology, because as you pointed out, humans are messy. We live for long periods of time. You can't study us in captivity. So it's very difficult to do an experiment. For example, if you wanted to demonstrate, do people who exercise four times a week or more have lower risks of pick your favorite disease versus people who don't exercise? Okay, well, to do that experiment is almost impossible because what are you going to do? Get you know, thousands of people and randomize them into two groups, meaning by randomization, that means you've mathematically created a large enough sample that you now know that your two groups are statistically identical. And now you have one group exercise five times a week and the other group never exercise. And first of all, you assume that they're doing that, how you could make them do that in without putting them in captivity <laughs> for 20 years, I don't know. But at the end of 20 years, you then ask the question, hey, or even 10 years, whatever, is there a difference in heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera? Now, we certainly think there would be, but we don't do that. Instead, what we do is we say, well, let's just actually go and survey the population. Let's take a backwards look and ask the question, okay, let's find people and do surveys and find out how much exercise everybody does. And then we'll stratify people. And we will then do a mathematical analysis to try to simplify for other variables um, and see if it gives us the answer. The problem with that is if you're comparing people who on their own are choosing to exercise five times a week versus people who on their own are choosing not to exercise, the likelihood that you are able to also tease out every other difference, for example, their sleep habits, their eating habits, it's very unlikely. Yes, you can, using statistical analyses, probably simplify some of the more obvious differences, such as smoking. As a general rule, I think you'd find a higher incidence of smoking in the non-exercising crowd than the smoking crowd. And that could probably be extrapolated, but many of these things cannot. And, 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 and there's actually an amazing essay on this or essay may be the wrong word, but Gary Tobbs, who uh, I know you must know, of course. Uh, he wrote a great piece in 2007 in the New York times magazine. Um, and it's, I don't remember the title of it, but it's something you should also link to this. Cause I think it's a real gem of a piece. The gist of it is like, what do we not know about studies? And, it, and I think it's one of the better pieces on the limitations of epidemiology and specifically this healthy user bias that really makes it difficult to understand um, the impact of nutritional choices, exercise choices, other quote unquote lifestyle choices, frankly, even drug choices mm -hmm. on hard outcomes. Because when you do these analyses, the 
hazard ratios, meaning the magnitude of difference between the groups is usually so small that it falls well below the threshold of epidemiology to rise to the level of saying, and it's not significance. You can confidence often find statistical actually. significance. It's just, can you it's be confidence. confident yeah. that there's a causal relationship here? And I would say, unfortunately, the answer today is virtually never. Another uh, example of healthy user bias that comes to mind is I, I, I hear often that people that floss their teeth have less cardiac disease, mm -hmm. as if flossing your teeth itself has an actual cause on your, uh, an effect on your heart. But now it could, it but could. the point is we point can't is, learn it from that study. We can't learn it because people that floss their teeth are also usually healthier in other ways and they have healthier habits in other ways. And that might be the reason why they don't have heart disease as often. So that's the healthy user bias. That, that I that's exactly right. right. And that's a great example of a question that would be quite vexing to me because I think that using cardiac disease as an example, it's, it's, it's certainly a disease that's both driven by lipoproteins, inflammation, uh, endothelial function, all of these other mm -hmm. things. So is there, a, is there a plausible mechanism by which you know, having poor dentition could increase your risk of heart disease? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a plausible mechanism there. But we're not going to, my guess is the hazard ratio on those studies is sufficiently low and therefore at best it's generating a hypothesis to be tested. Yeah. Well, regardless, you should, you should, uh, whether it affects your heart or not, you should, you should <laughs> floss your teeth, everybody. <laughs> we think. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so, you know, you used, you've been throwing around a couple of words like epidemiology um, and uh, epidemiology uh, is another word for an observational study. Uh, an observational study or an epidemiological study is different from a what they call a r random controlled study. And you're kind of touching on how hard that is when you're talking about putting people in captivity because you have to control for all these variables. Uh, otherwise, it will confound the results. So why... And you touched on this a little bit, but maybe you can touch on it a little bit more. Why aren't there more you know, random control studies, which are considered the, the researcher's gold standard of studies. Why are we relying on all these epidemiological studies, which, as you just pointed out, have all these confounded, all these, uh, you know, problems? So I think it comes down to a couple of things. But um, one of the biggest issues is the most obvious one, which is a logistics problem. It is very difficult to do randomized control trials, and it is often much, much more expensive. It also takes much longer. So if you want to study the effect of, uh, let's go back to the previous example we had, does the frequency of exercise impact, even just pick one metric, does it impact your risk of Alzheimer's disease? Um, which is a, a, a very important question uh, and certainly one that logically would make sense, you know, more exercise, better blood flow, you know, you know, a number of neurotrophic factors, BDNF, all of these things. You can come up with a hundred mechanisms why. Mm -hmm. But if put to the test, are we going to say we're going to get two groups, several hundred people, and force one of them to not exercise, force another one of them to exercise? And again, we're not going to put these people in captivity. That's impossible. So they're going to have to live in their free world and hope that the compliance is high enough that you create enough discrimination between the two groups and then follow for an outcome. Now, it's not to say that, that nothing I described there cannot be done. All of that can be done. The question is, how difficult is it? How expensive is it? And oh, by the way, who's paying for that study? <laughs> because it's very difficult to remunerate on an exercise study. So while we can, we're, we have a much higher appetite for doing randomized control trials in pharmacology, and mm. part of it is because the FDA says you have to. We're not approving this drug if you haven't done, if you haven't demonstrated safety and efficacy 
and effectiveness in prospective clinical trials. Um, but there's an incentive to spend a billion dollars, which is about how much it will cost today, a little over a billion today, to get a drug approved through that process. Hmm. But it's Crazy. very difficult to imagine doing that with something for which there's no remuneration. Mm -hmm. That's the first fundamental problem. The second one comes down to the ethical problem. Sometimes the most interesting questions are ones in which we just really don't think it would be ethical to randomize people to one of the two groups. In other words, you can't test harmful effects. Yeah, we can't. Not that this is debatable today, but certainly there was a great period of time after the landmark Surgeon General's report in the early 1960s demonizing smoking. Between that and the widespread acceptance of the role of the smoking plate in lung cancer. But the question is, could you, with all of that mounting evidence, and those were examples where the hazard ratios were more than 10. So this now gets into the territory of where epidemiology may actually be sufficient, sufficient for determining causality. Mm -hmm. But would we feel, if, if we were you know, scientists and physicians designing that study, would we be comfortable randomizing people to a forced smoking group? <laughs> and the answer is no. And, and similarly today, I don't know that if I were involved in a clinical trial, I'd be terribly excited about randomizing people to a group of don't exercise right. or let's disrupt your sleep for the next 10 years. Certainly let's on a short-term basis, it's probably reasonable to do sleep disruption studies over a period of weeks or even months to test the you know, validity of, yeah. of theories around the importance of sleep and, you know, for example, because glucose homeostasis. In a silly way, with, uh, what the guy did in Supersize Me, you know, how he just like ate all that crappy food. For, That's right. You know, so it's, uh, I mean, he chose to do that to himself and then tested his, body, you know, his, uh, yeah. his uh, health markers throughout the, the yeah. period. Sample size of one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but basically, these are, the, these are the fundamental issues, which is, you know, compliance, logistics, duration, cost, and ethics. Yes. So, okay, so hence the reason why we are really relying on so many observational studies or epidemiological studies. Uh, you even pointed out that 52 observational studies were looked at, and uh, these particular 52 observational studies were actually tested by a random control study. And the random controlled studies showed that every single conclusion of the 52, all 52 conclusions of the observational studies were wrong. <laughs> they, they didn't, there's a zero for 52. That's ridiculous. So, so what gives? I mean, I think we, I think a lot of the low hanging fruit in epidemiology is gone. I think that's the bottom line. I think when you think of the real gems, the real case studies of what made epidemiology great, it was in areas where, so, so epidemiology is such a blunt tool that you need enormous amounts of discrimination between what you're trying to detect. And so smokers getting lung cancer or not getting lung cancer, people exposed to massive amounts of asbestos getting mesothelioma, yes or no, chimney sweepers or non-chimney sweepers getting scrotal cancer, yes or no. You know, these questions, they had such enormous impacts that the epidemiology could give us uh, much, much more confidence in an answer. Today, we're dealing with things where if there, and, and, and to be clear, going back to those 52 cases, I'm not suggesting that every one of those epidemiology studies was incorrect. It's also possible that some of those randomized control trials were so poorly done that they missed the mark. Um, what I'm saying is at that point, we're now outside of the discriminatory capacity of the tool to measure. And I, and I don't know if I, I think we've written about this as well. An even more upsetting feature is not that. What's more upsetting is when you look at, and, and John Ioannidis, who's, if anybody's interested in this space, 
and they're looking for one person to be reading uh, in terms of just like who's, who's a very thoughtful academician who I, I think has some of the most insights on this topic. It's, it's, a, it's this fellow by the name of John Ioannidis at Stanford University. Um, and, and John's written some of the most cited papers on this topic, including a very famous paper, I believe in 2005 and plus one that gets at this notion of how most published research is incorrect. So, all right, which kind of brings me to the, the grand finale question is now that we're thoroughly confused and we can't trust observational studies or random control studies because they're so difficult to do or not done well. So what do we do when, as lay people? We're trying, to, we're trying to lead healthy lives. We're trying to improve ourselves. We're trying to make decisions what drug to take or not take. What do we do? I mean, like, it, it if seems you're like, not prepared to do the de- the deep dive, like well, what's step one? Well, I even think, with yeah. a deep dive, it seems like uh, you know, even you know, you can learn, you can read a book on statistics and still do your homework and still figure out. Holy cow, we still don't know for sure. So, so what do we do? Well, I mean, I guess there's there's t- a couple ways to think about this. I think the first way to think about this is um, to get comfortable with uncertainty. And I think. I don't think we're wired to deal with uncertainty very well. We don't really that's think That's why there's religion. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's why there's a lot of actual problems. Uh <laughs> frankly, which is we we and and again, I when I say we I I'm being very deliberate and to include myself because even though I'm trained in mathematics um and I I think I think as probabilistically as anybody, I know that in my darkest moments I tend to revert to binary thinking. And so I think, what does that mean? Meaning it's black or white. It's this or it's that. There's no probability, you know, as opposed to thinking in probability distributions. Mm -hmm. So the the real way we should always be thinking about life is probabilities. Now, in some cases, we we love the examples where the probabilities are so clear. So if I drop this pen, what is the probability that it will hit the floor? Well, that is actually, you know, you can describe that with a probability function in physics and mathematics, and it will show you there's that a probability, a small probability, there's a, actually hit the yeah, floor. there's a theoretically <laughs> small probability that it won't hit the floor. <laughs> From a practical standpoint, in that example, the answer is zero. So we have a bunch of rules that govern our universe that get us, I think, overly comfortable in the notion of yes or no, black or white, zero or one, binary type answers. Uh, in, in, in sort of engineering, we describe that as being digital, mm-hmm. on or off. Gotcha. The, the opposing concept is called analog, where you have a sliding scale from zero to one, you turn up the lever. And some, so, so that's, to me, biology is much more analog than digital. And therefore, for every question, you just have to say, well, we may never actually know the answer to this. What I, what I have to do if I'm making a decision or what my doctor has to do if she's making the decision or at least advising me on the decision is I have to be able to understand the risk-adjusted return on this investment. So the very simplest way I try to explain this to patients is using a two-by-two two matrix. So on the mm-hmm. x-axis is where I talk about the reward. Mm-hmm. On the a Y axis, the vertical axis is where I talk about the risk. Now, even though those are the hormone replacement therapy might be a good. Sure. Uh, Frankly, everything that we do is an example of this. In fact, Bob and I often will draw on a whiteboard like this two by two matrix and, and shade in the parts of it that we think represent any type of intervention. So where does, Mm -hmm. where does high intensity interval training fit in on this? Where does, you know, 
long distance endurance training fit into this? Where does taking metformin fit into this? Where does, you know, intermittent fasting fit into this? Like anything that you can do should be able to be placed on that matrix. And it's not a point. It's not a dot, by the way. It's like a, you know, a shaded curve. curve. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's complicated. So, but you can simplify this into a two by two as opposed to just a continuum. And the two by two would be when dealing with the reward or the payoff, think about picking up a Bitcoin versus picking up a dollar bill. Now, this, <laughs> example. Is, this example might be irrelevant in a few years if Bitcoin's irrelevant, but few months, man. Let, let the record show that at the moment of this, a Bitcoin is still worth something. So, so you either, you're either asking the question is, am I picking up a Bitcoin or am I picking up a dollar bill? Or make it a penny for that matter, right? Something that we think we would ascribe very little value to. On the risk side, the question is, am I picking this thing up while it's sitting in front of a moving tricycle or a moving train? Mm-hmm. So what? So I try to look at everything I do through that lens. And the first thing you want to realize is you never, ever want to be picking up dollar bills in front of moving trains. That's an obvious statement, but it's worth thinking through things that you might do. There are lots of things that I think people propose to do that in my mind amount to that picking up a dollar bill in front of a moving train. Yeah. You know, you could get a dollar, but it could also be a catastrophic outcome. (laughs) Um, Conversely, there are very few opportunities that we aren't already aware of that are akin to picking up bitcoins in front of tricycles. Most of those things have been realized. Mm -hmm. For example, not smoking is picking up a bitcoin in front of a tricycle. Yeah. It's got a huge multiplier effect and it's, you know, it's relatively safe to not smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Similarly, being insulin sensitive as an outcome is, 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 is another one of those things where like, there's just no disagreement. There is complete convergence along the importance of insulin sensitivity Mm -hmm. with respect to cardiovascular health, cerebral health, cancer, et cetera. Now the how to becomes more problematic. Mm -hmm. So you know, should one do this type of exercise versus that type of exercise? Should one take this drug versus that drug? You know, metformin I brought up before a moment ago because, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, about 10 years ago, it started to become pretty clear in uh, what are called cohort studies where you took backwards looks at, you know, backwards looks at data that were collected for other reasons. Retrospective. Yeah, these are retrospective cohort studies that were looking at patients with diabetes who were taking metformin versus those who weren't taking metformin and they corrected for all sorts of factors. And, you know, the suggestions looked pretty interesting, actually. Um, both on an absolute and relative basis, the metformin takers were getting a lot less cancer. Their, their, their relative risk uh, reduction of cancer was about 25%, and their relative risk in mortality was about 38 to 40%. Again, I don't remember the absolute numbers, but they weren't trivial. It wasn't like one of these 0.1% mm-hmm. questions. So it begged the question, should we be taking metformin for cancer prevention? Now, so at least three out of five patients will come in my office and they want to know if they should be taking metformin. And by full disclosure, I do. I've been taking metformin for 10 years. But I also like to point out to patients that I'm taking it in a really off-label way because I don't actually have data that talk about insulin-sensitive people taking metformin to reduce the risk of cancer. So to me, I don't think the benefit, because so, so the benefit of taking metformin if you have diabetes it's obvious. might be high enough that that's like yeah. your Bitcoin. And I think metformin is a relatively safe drug that it's mm. probably closer to the tricycle than it is the train. Sure. Um, but in someone like me, I think if I'm going to be brutally honest, it's really picking up a dollar bill. I don't believe I'm getting nearly the benefit 
of the patients with type 2 diabetes. And I say that based on subsequent cohort studies that looked at um, obese non-diabetics that were insulin resistant versus not, et cetera. So to your macro question, how the hell does one <laughs> actually make sense of this? I think the, the short answer is you don't. There is no making total sense of this. There is no knowing what to do at all times. There's simply a process by which you think about things. And notice everything in that process involves your own lens for risk. Well, you know, when you, when you talked about, you were describing the bicycle versus the train picking up a penny. I mean, that, that says it all, I think. I mean, that, that's the answer because, uh, you know, when I relate, when you were saying that, I was thinking about a comment that one of my clients made to me saying, listen, I, Adam, I remember what you told me because this is a guy that over, I considered overtrained. You know, he just worked out way too much, always getting hurt, always sore. And uh, I said to him, you know, I, I, I'm more of your risk manager than I am your trainer. Uh, in other words, you know, squats are a great exercise. Deadlifts are a great exercise. But at what risk? Because doing squats with barbells or weights on, on, on your spine is just not worth the benefit because it can be catastrophic. You might as well do leg press. And maybe a leg press machine is not as effective as a squat with dumbbells on it, uh, you know, but it's a lot less risky. So that's, these are the decisions that we're making in how we train people, how we exercise. Yeah, maybe squats are better. Who knows? But they're a lot, I know they are a lot riskier. So let's, let's take the less risky route. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great example. With, uh, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of squats and deadlifts, <laughs> but I'll still go through periods of time. You know, Mike, we were talking earlier at the workout. You asked me before we started, hey, you got anything kind of bugging you? And it's like, yeah, you know, my right SI joint's been bugging me mm -hmm. for a little while. And I actually took six weeks off deadlifting, just focused on all single leg isolateral, you know, lots of lunges, lots of uh, lateral stuff, mm -hmm. and basically just had to give the thing a rest. Now, did, was that absolutely necessary? No, I'm sure I could have pushed through it. But yeah, the view was, look, I can probably get 80% of the benefit without the exposure and the risk. And I think when you are doing very, very heavy compound joint movements, uh, rule number one is don't get hurt. And, yeah. and, and you talk to any good investor, they'll say rule number right. one is don't lose money. Now, right. Charlie Munger probably gets credit for being the first to say that. But I think any investor will say that rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. <laughs> and rule number one of exercise is don't get hurt. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. That was, that was great. And uh, sorry that we didn't have any great conclusion for you people, but uh, that's, that's reality, that, that there's a lot of uncertainty in this world. Now, I highly, highly recommend you read everything that Dr. Atia writes. He has a website, peteratiamd.com, right? Peteratia, A-T-T-I-A-M-D.com. Uh, read everything he writes. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for coming on our show. That was very informative, uh, very articulate. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for the workout, Mike. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. We'll include links in the show notes, not only to Dr. Atia's website, but also to an article that he referenced earlier in the episode written by Gary Tobbs. The article's titled, Do We Really Know What Makes Us Healthy? Dr. Atia also referenced a video that you can find on YouTube. It's Richard Feynman's Scientific Method. We'll have a link in the show notes to that as well. You'll find additional links in the show notes that will direct you to the Inform Fitness website, where you'll find a free slow-motion, high-intensity workout waiting for you. Just click the Try Us Free button right there on the homepage, fill out the form, pick your location, and then you can experience a free full-body workout that you can complete in just 20 to 30 minutes. It's informfitness.com. And yet another link in the show notes is for Adam's book titled Power of 10, 
the once a week slow motion fitness revolution. That link will take you to Amazon and for less than 15 bucks you'll find a ton of nutritional tips including a handy list of foods that support the Power of 10 protocol and some effective demonstrations of exercises that you can perform in the comfort of your own home. You know, we have close to 50 episodes for you to binge listen if you're new to the podcast, so don't forget to hit subscribe in whichever podcast app you might be listening. And if you don't mind, we'd really appreciate it if you took a couple of moments to leave us a review. Until next time, for Adam Zickerman and Mike Rogers of Inform Fitness, I'm Tim Edwards with the Inbound Podcasting Network.